Messiah. Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to accomplish what you desire to do. And I know that from these three verses, you desire to have us understand and then apply the truth that the measure of our spirituality is how well we love you and love others. And this fruit of the Spirit is the soil in which these spiritual gifts grow. Thank you for unfolding this love for us. We'll look next time at verses 4 through 7 and that what exactly this love is and what it means. But this morning as we understand without a doubt, so very clearly, so very obvious, so very plain here, that whatever we do, if it is not anchored in love for others, Lord, it is, it is, it is pointless, it is meaningless, it does not glorify you. So I pray that you would change us to that. We thank you for the one who has shown us exactly what this looks like and has done it in an eternal way. In our Savior's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. This Corinthians 13 is on your wedding inserts. It's framed up on walls. It's a magnificent expression of so much in few words. But in the context here, it's about a church that isn't getting along. And it's presented as the antidote to the poison of selfishness and pride. The chapter here is primarily about living in Christian community in a way that glorifies God. And this is particularly the part of the First Corinthians 11 through 14 that's talking about when they get together, their life with one another, sharing life together. And it's, and it's about uh, learning to treat each other as members of Christ's body the way God has treated us with a self-sacrificing, others-oriented love. When I was in Burma a couple weeks ago, um, Birch broke down chapter 12 in the two parts here and preached on the gifts and the purpose of the gifts to show that Jesus is, is Lord. And now in verse 13, chapter 13, it wasn't the, it wasn't the issue that they weren't expressing their gifts as they were expressing it to show that they themselves were Lord. It was not planted in the soil, the fertile soil of love. And when we hear this concept of love immediately, perhaps in our day and age, we think of love as a feeling. We think of love as a romanticism. We think of love as something that comes and goes. And if I don't have that love anymore, then I need to step away from that marriage relationship and find something better. And it's been reduced so and shrunken so much. We thought we blew it up making love be everything. And we thought we we made love uh, uh, have such a powerful meaning but we talk about how we love macaroni and cheese and we talk about how we love Jesus. And you can see there's a little dissonance there. We talk about how we hate broccoli and we talk about how we hate sin. You can see the ways we use our language today. But I want you to understand the, 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 the term love here translated charity from the Latin word uh, uh, used in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the Latin Vulgate. Charity. The idea of love here is a love of the quality that we see on the cross. It is a love for the utterly unworthy. 
It is a love that proceeds from a God who is and always has been eternally love that He shared with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in one. It's a love that is lavished on others whether without a thought whether they are worthy of that love or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the one who is loved. And Romans 5.8 tells us that the Christian who has experienced God's love for him while he was yet a sinner has been transformed by that experience. And so now he sees people as those for whom Christ died. The object of God's love. And so therefore the objects of the love of God's people who have been joined to God. And it's in this measure that he comes to practice a love that does not have an agenda. A love that is not seeking things for itself, but is seeking the good of the loved one. And it is this love, charity, that the Apostle unwraps for us. So when we say to have love, and Paul will use that phrase if I have charity, have not charity, or have not love, it means to be toward others the way God in Christ has been toward us. To keep it simple. You see, our attitude towards one another is everything. It is so key, it's so important. The attitude behind our actions are most important. The heart is the key. And what Paul is saying here is you can go through Christian ministry even saying you're doing it for Jesus. But if the attitude is not right, it is nothing. It is nothing. And Paul gets past the facade and deep into the soul because God always wants our heart. He told Solomon, give me your heart. He wrote through Solomon's words, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He talks about a complete heart. He talks about being wholehearted. God wants our heart. And He wants our heart to be a heart with a right attitude toward others and genuineness in 1 Corinthians 13. And we need to understand that, again, that love expressed is not a victim of emotions. In other words... The love that we share to others is not the result of our emotions and how we feel. The love we share to others, the God love, the Calvary love, the Christ love, is a love that is a servant of choice. A love that makes the choice to love others. Verse 4-7 through is going to spell that out more. But love is an attitude expressing itself in action. Especially to those who are very hard to love. Because Paul's writing to people who have opinions about other people who think they're very hard to love. He's not writing to people who are just getting along and everything's wonderful and swimmingly, right? He's writing on people, he's writing to people who have uh, 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 opinions, wrong opinions, right opinions, but they are not expressing them in love. Where is 1 Corinthians 13 anchored in? What's the root of all of this? Well, it is anchored in Jesus' words, and Paul is teaching the Corinthians to obey what Jesus has commanded. 
And we see this in the Lord's commands to His disciples by reminding them that the supreme command is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. And then He says the second command is like unto it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And throughout the centuries, people have displayed many different symbols to show that they're Christians, haven't they? Some wore uh, marks and lapels of their coats. So some have a chain about their necks with a, with a cross. Even uh, throughout the years, people uh, identify themselves as Christians uh, with, with special haircuts, right? And there's nothing ultimately wrong with any of those things. If, but there's a much better sign, and there's a biblical sign, and it is a mark that has not just been thought up to use on some special occasion or some specific era of time. It is a universal mark of God's people that is to last throughout all the ages until Jesus come back, comes back. And it's in John chapter 13. You know where I'm going. John chapter 13. I want us to see this mark that's to be blazoned on Jesus' followers. Mark chapter 13, verse 33. Little children, yet a little while, as I... Excuse me. Little children, yet a little while, why I am with you, you shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you. This is the eve of Jesus' crucifixion. He'll die on the cross tomorrow. He's having His last words with His disciples in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. There again is the description of what that love looks like, as I have loved you, and you love one another. And then in verse 35, he says this, and maybe we pass over this, or we've heard it so much, we're so familiar with it, but it is shocking. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Why is that shocking? Well, it is shocking because at the close of his ministry, as Jesus is looking forward to his death on the cross, the open tomb, and the ascension, he is knowing he's about to leave, and Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come. And it is here that he makes clear what is the distinguishing mark of the Christian. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. He's given authority and permission to the unbelieving world to do something. And He is giving permission to do this. Upon Jesus' authority as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the one who will die and be buried and rise again in the said, He is giving permission for the world to judge us. And to judge us based on this fact, whether you and I are born again Christians on the basis of their observable love of us to other fellow believers. Now, of course, we know that a person's judgment does not determine whether or not they are a born again believer. But what Jesus is doing here is He is giving them permission to say, hmm, on the basis of what I see, they are a follower of Jesus. Of course, Jesus is the one we answer to. But Jesus is saying, this is the litmus test to the world of the genuineness of your faith. Love. 
One person said love and the unity to test to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. It's a love that Jesus then will pray for out of this love in John 17.21. He prays for a connectedness then. That they all may be one, John 17.21, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they all also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so it's this command that Paul writes First 1 Corinthians 13. He says this is the issue here. This is the core. This is the root of it all. It's something that Paul has instructed the churches that have been planted here after Jesus has ascended and left His Spirit over and over with. He has urged believers to root all their actions in love. In Romans 13, he says, Oh, no man anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And any other commandments, Paul says, can be summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Love is a fulfillment of the law, Paul says, the law of Christ. Romans 12, 9 and 10, he said this as well. He says, love be without dissimulation. Let it be without hypocrisy. Hate, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. At the end of this book of 1 Corinthians that, we'll, that, we will, uh, that, that we are in, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14 says, Watch! Stand fast in the faith. Be, be, be courageous. Be brave. He says, be strong. And he says, let all that you do, all that you do, be done in love. In Galatians 5, dealing with the Galatians who he says, you guys are biting and devouring one another. Works of the flesh are being manifested. And you need the, the fruit of the Spirit. Before he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he says, that for, for in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But, he says, but, here's what avails everything. Here's what matters. He says, faith working through love. James talks about many of these things. And he says, oh, you say you have faith. Okay, well, prove it right. In James chapter 2, in verse 8, he talks about the royal law that is to love our neighbor. And so 1 Corinthians 13, as we come back to our text here, is a rebuke to the Corinthians. It is everything that they were not. Everything, every positive that's stated here in 1 Corinthians 13 is exactly what the Corinthians were not. They had elevated the gifts of the Spirit instead of the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts were to flow out of the fruit of the Spirit. They were busy, but they were busy with wrong motives in heart toward each other. And so in Corinth... God, through Paul, has given the antidote to what was going on in the troubled church. Now in 1 Corinthians 13, you can break it down into really uh, three parts here. In verses 1-3, through you can see the preeminence of love. The preeminence of love. Then in verses 4-7, through you see the picture of love. And then in verses 8-13, through the perseverance of love that will last through even into eternity. 
We want to focus on verses 1 through 3. Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Here Paul wants to remind them that in our activity, all we do for the Lord, if our heart is not right toward others and we do not love others, then what we do is worthless. And if we serve out of love for each other, then it is a very powerful force on the positive side. It glorifies God. Now you'll notice... It's always good to look at the verses before and after a section. So look at chapter 12, verse 31, how Paul has closed the chapter. He says, But covet earnestly, desire, seek earnestly the best gifts, and yet, he says, that's not ultimate, is it? He says, Yet show I to you a more excellent way. So chapter 13 is the more excellent way. So what you need to understand here is everything in chapter 13 is the way of Christ. It's the more excellent way. It's the way of the believer. way of the follower of Christ. It's the way of the Christ people. It's the way of the Spirit people. It's the way of the children of the Father. As John will say in 1 John. Now as we look through this passage in verses 1-3, through you notice this condition repeated over and over. It's the word if. Right? If. If. If, if, divides our passage today. The first thing I want us to see in verse 1 here, it's not what you say that is the measure. It's not what you say that is the measure of life with God. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. When he has listed the gifts... In verse chapter 12, verse 28, tongues kind of comes at the end. Here he puts it not last of the list, but first on the list because he must call it out first. You'll see him calling it out when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and putting it in its place. Because it is used in arrogance and it was used selfishly by the Corinthians. They had an obsession with it. It was a good thing, a good gift that God gave, and it turned the wrong way. Whenever we take a good gift that God gives and turn it the wrong way and violate its purpose, it becomes an idol. And so here's what has happened to the Corinthians. Something that God had given them became something that they used for their own selfishness and arrogance. Tongues was a supernatural ability to speak a known language without normal human learning process to offer praise to God. Paul says, if I can do that, speak the tongues of men, known languages, and then he says, end of angels. He adds a dramatic effect. If there's an angel language, Paul says, if I can even speak that, if I could... And Paul says, I do this without love. Paul says, I have become. Notice, Paul is practicing love himself by saying, if I do this. He wants them to know what starts with him. He says, if I do this and I'm full of pride... Doing this, so I'm bringing attention to myself. He said, I am as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. 
Some of you like the sound of cymbals, you like the sound of brass, but the idea there was, can you imagine Paul in the marketplace in Corinth and he's working next to the guy who makes pots. The guy who makes pots is with his hammer banging on the brass all day. That would get a little old after a while, right? Or, I'm not a big fan of little yappy dogs. Maybe some of you are, and I apologize for that, but I am not. And when they bark, or, or maybe it's a warm summer night, you're exhausted, it's hot, and the neighbor's dog just won't stop barking, right? How obnoxious is that? How annoying. It's like smoke in your eyes, right? It's an irritant, it's a distraction. Or remember when you were in school and you had, uh, you had the uh, uh, fire drills? And they would turn the fire alarm on and those lights would, would flash and those bells would ring around your classrooms and all the kids would be walking out in their lives in their classrooms and their teacher would have their little red book with the names of all the kids, right? Make sure they got everybody, make sure someone wasn't left in the bathroom. They'd all march out in lines and then they'd check off who was there but you could still hear the fire alarm ringing. Maybe that was just me, I don't know. It was obnoxious, wasn't it? Or my brother who is a missionary in Indonesia and it's a Muslim country and every day, uh, uh, several times a day at certain calls, of, uh, certain times of day, they have the call to prayer. And it's not a pleasant thing. It's the mournful yelling and the noise that gets old. And Paul's day in the pagan temples, they would beat the drums. They would bang the cymbals for their pagan festivals. It's obnoxious. I got a, you could get a little taste of this if you go to Myanmar for the Buddhist festivals. They have these speakers that look like those old-time uh, cornucopia-shaped speakers here, and they're blasting out this, this Buddhist music, and, and the people are standing there shaking their... They're, they're bowls for you to throw money in, and, it, and, it, and it's literally ear-splitting, and they're talking and, and, and guilting you into trying to give money, etc. here for the, for the Buddhist priests, and, and it, it's just empty. And here these purple people were drawing attention to themselves, but they had no spiritual reality here in their gift without love. And Paul says, there's just a bag of hot air without love. When you speak without love, you're just noise, nothing more. Paul, Paul says, your best speaking, your, your best writing, your best teaching, your best preaching, your best singing, your best counseling, your best witness, even if you have the eloquence of angels, Paul says, is empty words without Calvary love. So, let's think about our homes, right? <laughs> spouse to spouse, husband to wife, wife to husband. What did you say? And how much of it was said out of sincere love? Siblings, kids, what did you say to your brothers and sisters or your parents, your mom or your dad? Was it in love and out of love? Believers to unbelievers, co-workers to co-workers, neighbor to neighbor, father to children, teenagers, Do not put the gifts of the Spirit above the fruit of the Spirit. If I have not love, it's worthless, it's empty. 
So that's what Paul says. It's not what you say that it's the measure. And then secondly, he's going to say it's not what you know that is the measure. Look in verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. Look at that first part there. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Prophecy was a supernatural gift that God made known truths about His mysteries that were being revealed during this time before the New Testament was finished. Um, you can see them listed in 12.28. Prophets. And then in chapter 14, verse 1, Paul follows up on prophecy. He says, follow after love and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. If that's a spiritual gift, Paul says, I want you to desire that one. And here he says in verse 3, He that prophesies speaks to men to edification and exhortation and comfort. Tongues was praised to God, verse 2. Verse 3, chapter 14, prophecy is speaking to men. Is speaking to men. Uh, uh, the knowledge of the truth from God that wouldn't be, have been known apart from the gift of prophecy. Prophecy made, made it known in the early church there. It was an amazing gift, apparently. Because Paul says, I wish you were all were prophets. And he talks, uh, he says, I desire, that, desire this, 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 this gift of prophecy. Paul said here, a gift of prophecy that is combined with knowledge of mysteries. And he says, is like a full head but an empty heart. It's nothing. It's driven by pride. It's not sown in the fertile soil of love. It's worthless. And friends, we have so much information available today, don't we? Certainly, we have the 66 books of the Bible. But we have an acquiring of knowledge about it. And if it does not translate to changed hearts that love God and love others, and we're spending all our time on our phones and our iPads and our computers, we've got 50 web browser tablets open, and we're not translating to loving others, then it's worthless. It's worthless. It's empty. Kids, if you take the number one and you put nine zeros after it, what number is that? It's not a trick question. Nine zeros. It's one what? I hear you. It's it's more than one million. It's one billion with nine zeros after it. All right. That's a lot, isn't it? If you take off that one, what is it? It's nothing. Friends, we could have nine zeros worth of gifts, but if it does not have the one in front of it, love in front of it, it's nothing. It's nothing. Do you know hypocrites make more atheists than atheists do? We can yell, we can preach, we can talk, we can, we can, uh, we, 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 we can post, we can... It's not done in love. It's empty. It's profitless. So Paul says it's not what you know that it's the measure of your spirituality. It's again love. And then he says, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. You say, faith! Faith is a victory that overcomes the world, Right? Faith, Hebrews 11. 
He that comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. By faith, by faith, by faith. I believe what Paul's saying here is that as you have all faith, you have all full, complete trust in God's promises. You never waver in your trust of the Word of God. You have an extraordinary capacity to trust God, especially expressed in prayer. That God will direct and He'll provide and bring glory. You have mountain-moving faith that Jesus talks about in the book of Mark. You have, a, you have a trust in God that He will remove imposing, intimidated obstacles of what is holding back progress. You have a faith that, re, that, that in the promises of God you can rearrange the landscape of the circumstances of life. You can petition God confidently in prayer to act on our behalf. And Paul says it's not how much you pray that is the measure as important as faith and prayer is, right? If you're absorbed with me, myself, and I, or you're do, simply doing things only out of duty and never get to joy focused on yourself and not seeking the highest good in others, you are not a great prayer warrior no matter how much you pray. Unless it is driven by love for others. Let love be the engine that drives faith. Let love be the engine that drives speaking. Let love be the engine that drives learning and knowledge. It's not how much you pray that is the measure. It is the heart of love behind that. And then... He says the last thing, verse 3. And it's like he just, like, Paul, where are you going to quit? Are you going to keep going here? Like, where, is, where are you going to end here? Like, um, you, you, you keep pushing deeper and deeper, harder and harder. Like, I've I got a little pushback against this one, right? In verse 3. Because he says, And though I bestow, I give away all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Well, Paul, you went a little too far here, right? I mean, are, are you, you guys feeling that a little bit? Like, giving away everything, giving my body to be burned? That sounds like sacrifice, doesn't it? Isn't love sacrificial? Is it just me that grabbed, wrestling with that? And Paul's saying, if you give all, if you have an extraordinary gift to, to look at possessions as not being important, very important in your life. You don't place great value on possessions. You transfer them to the needy and you give everything away even. Even to the point of your own life. And Paul says, if there is not love behind that, and even that means nothing. You know why? Because again... God looks for what's behind the act, doesn't He? The heart. The heart measured by its love for others, not self. You see, is that giving, even that, that demonstration of giving your body to be burned, is it a demonstration or is it from love? Paul says you can have empty pockets and still have an empty heart. This seems like the total package the guy who did it all, even to the point of death, right? And Paul says, without love, you got a big, fat zero. Nothing. Oh, you got the brass plaque up of what you gave. Remember, the Pharisees would give, and they had people going before them with trumpets blasting, right? 
Blasting their announcements of donations. But Paul says it's empty. Maybe you can think of it like this. If you, if you, some of you kids may have tried to bake a cake for the very first time. And you carefully measured and you took the recipe and you blended what the recipe said to put in it. You poured the mix into the right pan, the right size pan. You looked and you carefully adjusted the oven temperature to exactly, not five degrees over, not five degrees low. Right exactly where it needed to be. And you put the pan in the oven. You set the timer to bake for 45 minutes. Or however long the direction set. And you took out the cake. And you looked at it. And it looked like a pancake. Because you forgot to put the baking powder in the flour. Without the baking powder, no cake. Unless you're some of you wonderful cooks or miracle wonders, right? You can basically turn water into wine. Make it happen. What Paul is saying is, you want to bake a cake, but you don't do baking powder, it's not going to come out. You want to serve God, you want to use your gifts, but you want to do it for you. You don't do it out of love for others. Paul says it's like leaving the baking powder out. Without the practice of Christian love, Christianity is empty, isn't it? The supreme virtue of Christ in you is loving others. This passage seems to make very clear as I understand the plain text here. And that would mean then that the worst virtue is the lack of love for others, right? You see, God is not measuring us here by looking at, oh, look at all the cars in the parking lot. Right? We thank God for the cars in the parking lot. He's not looking at our Bible and say, wow, that guy's spiritual. Look at all the marked verses and the underlined verses and the notes. Important as that is, right? I'm a Bible marker. I underline and write notes. Or look at that guy's library. Christian books, study helps, Greek helps, Hebrew helps. Or the hours they spend in study. That's not, again, all good things. Not the measure, Right? Not the measure. Look how much of his paycheck he put in the offering. Give sacrificially. Right? Give. But that's not the measure here, is it? Listen to the passion of their heart sing when they sing their favorite Christian songs. Look at that guy's spiritual gifts and his ability that I gave him. Right? No. The measure of our progress in Christ here is yes, all those things are fine, they're good. The measure of our progress in Christ, the standard of our spirituality, the indicator of Christ in us is love. A love regardless for those who have not done anything to earn it. Regardless if they are unlovely. It's this love that's basic for Christ-likeness and is essential to show the world His mark is on us. And friends, you say, well, that's pretty lacking in my life, but over here I'm pretty good at this. Is that what you get from this passage? To me, it's very clear, nothing compensates for it, right? Nothing outweighs it. Everything is like air compared to the heavy weight of sacrificial love. And if you are like me, you should be convicted from this passage. Because we're not in heaven yet. We're not fully glorified. And if I am to glorify God, which is what I am saved to do, right? And spread His 
witness of who He is to others, then abounding love should increase more and more in my heart. The fruit of the Spirit living in me should grow more full and more sweet. You know, there's something interesting I've realized about fruit of the Spirit. We kind of think of, oh, we just grow fruit and it just sticks there, right? Just hanging out there, fruit of the Spirit. But everywhere in the natural world, fruit is for the benefit and enjoyment of others, isn't it? The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 24, 25, starts off with love, right? Joy, peace, gentleness, etc. But those fruits of the Holy Spirit, that work the Holy Spirit's done in you, is meant to bless others, isn't it? It's for others to pick and enjoy. And nothing can compensate for it. And perhaps you look in this passage and you say, I'm a little bit overwhelmed here by the extreme language that Paul's saying about love. That's a little too much for me. You feel overwhelmed by the Bible's command to love unconditionally. And, 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 and you might be asking in your mind, how can I ever start to love everyone like I should? The answer is probably the same to those who start jogging here in New Year's. New Year's. You start slow, right? If you started running, a little, put on a few pounds and you want to get your heart in shape or you start an exercise, your first goal is to just keep moving, right? In New Year's, when everybody will make their New Year's resolutions here, people will buy new shoes, a membership, fancy running suit, they'll sprint out the door, they'll tug as hard as they can for about three blocks, right? For about two days. Their stomachs begin to hurt, their muscles will cramp, their lungs will burn, and they're going to wind up hitchhiking home, right? Exhausted. And they're saying, I'm never going to do that, that again. That's called, in the exercise world, apparently... Those of you who exercise more than I do, you can tell us that that's called anaerobic exercise, right? That means, you know what anaerobic means? Without oxygen. Without oxygen. Your body is using up more oxygen than it takes in, okay? A lot of people try to run that way, and many people try to love that way. Great fervor. You read a passage like this, a great passion. God, i got to love people. Help me to love people and self-sacrifice. You're giving everything, but you're not doing it with the resources to continue for a lifetime. Your output has to be matched by your intake. Running requires oxygen. And enduring love requires you warming yourself at the fires of God's love. And why is it that when we see how we're supposed to love in 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul will say in Ephesians 3 that he prays that they know the depth, the height, the length, the breadth of the love of God. Who Paul says will fill you. Will fill you with the life of God Himself. That's how you start. Meditating on the glories of God's love. That's how you run the marathon of loving others.
As we close, let's turn to 1 John. Because there were other disciples, followers of Jesus, who understood Jesus' commandment there that night in the upper room and wrote about it. Built their ministry on it. In 1 John 3, verse 14. Paul, uh, John is again, he's talking about marks of, of, of life in us. And he says in 1 John 3.14, We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death, still living in the old life. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we, or here by this we understand, perceive we the love of God. And here's what love is again, because He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Go to 1 John 4. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, or God revealed His love toward us in this way, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. There's your intake, right? Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and His love is perfected. It's completed in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Verse 20. A man say, I love God and hates, despises his brother. He's a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. You see, John doesn't try to split it up and say, you can love God but not love your brother. He says, if you love God, you love Love your brother. Love your neighbor. Would you read 1 Corinthians 13 again every day this week? And we'll look at what love is. It's kind of ambiguous still in our minds, perhaps, but verses 4 through 7 is going to just. It's going to hurt. He's going to take the chisel and he's going to pound it into cracks and crevices and inflammation. I mean, it's going to be worse than going to the chiropractor next week. Verses 4 through 7 is going to flesh out, okay, you know that whatever we do it has to be at it, sourced out of love, a genuine love. So what does that look like? And where the rubber meets the road, that's where it hurts, but that's where we get, that's, that's the running uphill part. That's the part where we get through and say, God, Do in me what you need to do.
As we close in prayer, what is the Spirit prompting you about in His evaluation of not your neighbor's love, but you, you, your love? And I want to close here, and we're not going to close with song. I want to close here, and if I can have the pianist play quietly. I want to close here with just you an opportunity, you alone with the Lord. And if there's things you need to clear up, take care of those things. There's things between you and the Lord, between you and your neighbor. There's people you need to you know you need to go home and talk to. There's a coworker or a boss you need to speak to. There's a family member. There's a brother and sister. And you do what the Spirit prompts you to do. Let's pray.